the Four Horsemen. What you have here is the Four Horsemen, united, live and exciting color. Um, not those Four Horsemen. These Four Horsemen discuss theology from different viewpoints, different perspectives, as we show people how to have discussions without turning into a keyboard warrior. Are you stupid? Now, here's Dennis Thurman, Adam Black, Benjamin Kerfman, and Derek McCarson, the Four Horsemen. Welcome to this episode of the Four Horsemen podcast. I am Derek McCarson, your host for today. I'm joined by my colleagues, Dennis Thurman, Benjamin Kerfman, and Adam Black. So what have you been reading recently? Um, I've got about three or four different books that I've been uh, pouring through, besides, of course, the book. The good book. But um, one of the books that I came across this spring was Erwin Lutzer's The Church in Babylon. And this is a great read, uh, especially for church leaders. And the, his thesis of his book is... Um, basically looking at the life of Daniel and the, the Hebrew uh, three who were in, in Babylon um, and how they preserved their integrity and their faith and uh, courageously lived for God in a pagan world. And his argument is that, uh, hey, the church is in Babylon today uh, in America. Uh, we are just as lost and dark and pagan as the Babylon of Nebuchadnezzar days, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's day. And so um, his book is about uh, different issues that we have to be confronted with if we're going to live and survive in this pagan culture. And he spends one chapter uh, talking about five false gospels within the evangelical church. Now, there's probably more than that, but he limited himself to five. And I thought that uh, after reading that chapter, not only would that be a great sermon series out there if you're looking for one, but um, also something that we could talk about today on our episode. Uh, some of these we may have touched on in previous episodes, but if you are in uh, leadership, if you are preaching, if you're teaching, um, if you keep up with what's going on in the culture and our church, uh, you have run into one of these, if not all of these, in some different setting I've been tempted maybe to compromise the message and uh, pander to one of these uh, different false gospels. And uh, the gospels that he mentions are, number one, the gospel of permissive grace. And then he talks about the gospel of social justice. He talks about the gospel of new age spirituality. And then he talks about the Gospel of Interfaith Dialogue. And, um, of course, there is the Gospel of My Sexual Preference. And so all of these are issues uh, culturally that we are dealing with, uh, very relevant. And so I thought if we could spend a few minutes talking about each or um, just as time allows. But let's jump into one that I know that we've mentioned before, and that is the gospel of social justice. Um, let me read for you just a paragraph, and then whoever wants to jump in and make comments, you go right ahead. Here is uh, from page 200 in the Church in Babylon. 
He says, history is repeating itself today, but with a different twist. Many millennials feeling as if they don't fit with evangelicalism's romance and conservative politics have chosen to devote themselves to social justice. And sadly, many of them have abandoned the doctrine of personal repentance and opted for what they see as a more practical gospel, helping the poor and needy, the gospel of social justice. So, Ben, we were just talking about... um, social justice before we came on. So uh, give us a definition. I know that that paragraph kind of touched on it and um, why this is a false gospel and why people are falling into it. I think it's a really complicated issue, which is why a lot of people are are wrestling with it. Um, I think that social justice in and of itself um, is not a bad thing right. um, in, in the sense of actual justice. Obviously, as Christians, we worship a just God, and in worshiping a just God, we think that justice is good and should be practiced and that people um, should be uh, given justice, uh, both those uh, who have been mistreated um, and also those who have uh, who are deserving judgment, that justice should go out to both of those people. And so we would agree with justice fundamentally um social justice in particular kind of takes two streams on on the one hand some people when they say social justice what they mean is is they mean um advocating for oppressed people groups Mm -hmm. so they would say there are certain people in society that maybe aren't treated equally or aren't afforded the same uh, privileges and things like that and that uh, those people need to be advocated for or people who don't have representation or a voice in the larger community need to be represented. And again, I think fundamentally as Christians, like we could probably agree with a lot of that. Um, The Bible speaks pretty clearly that people like orphans and widows and others in society that are marginalized, that we as Christians should be uh, building those people up and providing for their needs and caring for them in in times Mm -hmm. of, of real need. But there's another stream of people that when they say social justice, what they mean essentially is cultural Marxism or, or leveling the playing field Equality. for everybody. Right. Yes. And and what they mean is this sameness in every respect. Which is impossible which to, in this fallen world. Exactly. is impossible. It, 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 the premise of it fundamentally is basically Darwinian, this idea that um, people are fundamentally good but uneducated and that um, essentially we're helping evolve people by using primarily the government to to level the playing field for people. Um, and the problem is, is that you just run into all kinds of issues, which is because fundamentally people are sinners. And anytime people have an opportunity to oppress another person for their own benefit, they generally do that as humans. That's just the normal human thing to do. So, yeah, there's there's two kind of streams. And I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from is because people are using the same terminology, but they mean it in different ways. And so they're, they're as Adam would say, they're talking past each other. Um, and there's there are there is some overlap of agreement, but then there's some serious differences too, uh, depending on what the person means when, when they're talking about social justice. Now, this, it could be very much related to a, an earlier false gospel that we have encountered in um, previous generations. And you probably heard of it called the social gospel. And social justice movement is very much related to that in that they say, hey, all we need to do is love people and take care of the poor and the needy and uh, just love them 
and we don't really want to get too far into preaching the gospel because that's what drives people away, and uh, we just need to show them the love of God. And uh, you may have heard the erroneous quote that's attributed, I believe, to uh, who was it? St. Francis of Assisi, I believe mm-hmm. it was, where they say, uh, uh, preach the gospel, and if if necessary, use words or something like that. And that's kind of the Which same. Which he never said. Right. That's kind of the same stream of thought that Franklin, is uh, attributed <laughs> to social gospel or social justice. And so the way you were asking, you know, so how do, how do we know that that's a false gospel or how do we have discern that? I think a lot of that is, well, what is the objective? So like when somebody says, hey, we need to, there's an oppressed people group in our society that we need to advocate for and we need to stand up for. Okay. What is your objective in that? What what does the win look like? If the win is uh, the glory of God, the salvation of man, the things that Scripture speaks to, then then we should be supportive of that. We want every single person to hear the gospel. So if you're telling me there's a group of people in America that are not hearing the gospel and that we need to stand up for those people or that we need to find a way to reach those people, then obviously as Christians we should be for that because it brings God glory. But if the objective is equality or sameness or equality of outcome, that's not the gospel. That's not, uh, Jesus said the poor will always be with you. Right. You know, um, Jesus didn't heal every single person that he came into contact with. He didn't relieve financial burdens for every single person he came into contact with. So the witness of scripture is not equality. The witness of scripture is um, we exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the way that we do that is by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus alone for our salvation. And so if somebody is doing something culturally that's towards that objective, then that is in line with the true gospel. But if the objective is outside of the glory of God and the salvation of man, then it's it's a false gospel because you can feed and clothe and support people all day long and they will die and go to hell and, yeah. and they'll never they'll never hear what they really need well, to hear. Yeah, I think the easiest way and when I was thinking about this today, you know, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And it said, in a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I think the problem is is, is it's flipping that. Mm-hmm. That's the, good. The, yeah. the main commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself and then love God. Um, yeah, and I and think along, that's where the discernment can Along come with in. that flip, Adam, um, social justice, social gospel, tries to address the outward needs of man, yep. mm-hmm. whereas the gospel is about the inward man, the, the, the soul. And so it, it reverses that, and, and, and Jesus comes to preach salvation to the soul. And in enthroning Jesus on the heart, that's where you have transformation from the inside out. And that's really the way that the gospel transformed uh, the Roman Empire into uh, uh, basically the society that led to the overthrow of 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 Rome and, and into to the, the Christian society, but it which was is the, inside out. Which is the point that Jesus made of, my kingdom is not of this world. Right, you know, Pilate right. was That's asking him, the, are you really a king? And he's like, yes, I am really king, but my kingdom is not of this world. I, I'm not here to overthrow the Roman Empire. I'm here to overthrow the curse of sin. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, is if we get those conflated, then you get this idea of... Prosperity gospel, you know, and this goes hand in hand. Well, you get prosperity gospel, but then you also get like all kinds of like radical views of like, you know, uh, if we can just usher in Old Testament law and force everybody to obey Old Testament law, you know, I mean, you look at uh, in Josiah's time in the scripture, he discovered the law, there was a revival, right? So, so we would say, 
But then after Josiah died, everybody just went back to wickedness. And so there wasn't a there wasn't a, a real transformation. That can only come through being born again, which is the point that Jesus made. And so if you're not getting people to to the new birth, uh, if they're not if they're not experiencing that, it doesn't matter how equal they are, because hell's pretty equal too. You know what I mean? And so you know, it doesn't matter who you are down there. <laughs> Dennis, you want to jump in or you want to move on to the next one? No, well, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And so I, I think that in this context, people are, many of them are well-intended in what they're wanting to do. They're actually wanting to take scripture seriously. Uh, injunctions, many of them that we have concerning the, the poor and uh, and to use that in terms of, uh, dealing with racism, institutional issues, uh, poverty, homelessness, immigration, the whole gamut of things, and uh, sexism and, and the rest of it. And and so, but the end doesn't justify the means. And so those good intentions, rather than taking us closer to helping people, will ultimately be counterproductive in that. And it may the, to me, the core issue is theological and there is a generation that is buying into subjectivism in their application of Scripture rather than seeing the objective truth of the Word of God. Now, that's a generalization. It doesn't mean that everybody has become a flaming liberal that buys into this, but I think it is the crack uh, that's opened. It is the camel's nose under the door in which people are, are looking at the ends and trying to get there by the wrong, uh, wrong means. It's, it's utopian in its very nature. Uh, it is a belief that man is not depraved, that there is a spark of divinity, there is good that can be nurtured and can be accomplished. And, and so as, as a result of that, I think, you know, they're, they're trying to construct their own Tower of Babel. And, and that never does work. Uh, utopians become despotic themselves. They become elitist who know everything and how to fix everything. And, and you're going to submit to that. <laughs> and there's going to be quality. There'll be equal poverty for everybody except the, the oligarchs that, that run everything. So, so I think that's a, a fundamental difference in the way we understand the nature of man and uh, and what can be done, and in this, it's it's always been that tension of faith and works. You know, faith has to be the the root, and uh, works the fruit. And so, in this case, like you're saying, it it kind of flip flops the two, and it begins with works to try to get faith, and uh, and that's an inversion that happens. The law has its purpose, but also has its limits. And the same people that will jump on you by this, uh, you know, always being pro-life and trying to, through the legal system, to impose your beliefs on everybody. Many of them will want to take law and impose their beliefs on us in terms of taxation and things like that, so that today it would look like this. The parable of the Good Samaritan would be a command for universal health care. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. yeah. Good point. So the point is... You can't just love people, and you can't just provide for people. You also have to tell them about their sin and their need for a Savior. You you can't address the physical and not the spiritual, or else you just make 
earth a nicer place to go to hell to uh, hell from <laughs> if you're not yeah. telling people about the dangers that their souls are in you don't love them exactly That's true yeah. you're, you don't really yeah. love them yeah and, Which, I, and i'm not going to surrender that by people saying well we're going to love folks and they they kind of embrace that love is their value because i submit they are not loving them they are actually condemning them and and just as you said real love is going to speak the truth those things are not contradictory just like love for God and love for your neighbor, we find these interwoven. They're two sides of the same coin. And uh, John, in his first epistle, really uh, stresses that if you don't love your neighbor that you've seen, you don't love God. Uh, if you can't love those made in his image that are visible, you don't love the invisible God. Mm-hmm. So, so he does come at it a different way, but, but, but there's no distinction between, between the two. But if you're not in a right relationship with him, you're not going to be concerned about justice. And if you feed sinners, you're going to fatten them up for the slaughter. Uh, you, you only help them when you give them the word with a view of uh, then, then being liberated to become more. And I've seen what we call redemption and lift. I've seen people get saved that had no concern about work, no concern about providing for their family, you know, and, and just... Uh, the dregs of society just living off of a welfare state that all of a sudden they get saved, they get redeemed and it lifts them and they decide they're going to go out and find a job. They're going to take care of their own. And so I think that's where it starts. All right. All that's good guys, which leads to the next one um, in this chapter that I wanted us to look at what Erwin Litzer calls the gospel of permissive grace. Let me read from you page uh, 193. He says, in times past, we preached the law. Once people were convicted of their sin, we explained to them the wonders of God's grace. But today, many preachers say, God loves you unconditionally, and God loves you just as you are. He says, the person listening hears, I can continue to sleep with my girlfriend. I can continue to be in love with my addictions, but thankfully, I'm pleasing to the Lord because of Jesus. In other words, unconditional love is interpreted as unconditional acceptance of one's lifestyle. And then he continues. He says, God does not love everyone in the same way. He loves his people, those who are in Christ unconditionally, even as he loves his son. But this does not mean that God is always pleased with our conduct, nor does it mean that God does not discipline us for our waywardness. And then he continues by talking about uh, discipline, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, and so on. But the gospel of permissive grace, uh, Adam, I think uh, you've got some thoughts on that. Um, well, it's, it goes to what we were just talking about. Um, you know, the the fact is, is that <clears throat> I think some of this too is is everyone goes to heaven, right? Everybody is a good guy, you know. But the whole idea of, you know, that God loves everybody and, and, and even you see preaching that is turned into that. They're, you know, sin and, you know, listen to Joel's thing every now and again. You'll you won't hear any of this that you are a special creation, you know, on and on and on. But, you know, the Bible's clear, you know, be holy for I am holy. Um and, 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 you know, Paul said, you know, be like me for I am like Christ. If we're saying we're a Christian, then what are people's idea of a Christian based on my actions? And if we think that we can do whatever we want, that is not who Jesus was. And so I think that there's a real danger in that. 
Okay, he quotes one author here in the book, a man named Joseph Prince. I don't know anything about this mm-hmm. guy, but he's apparently hyper-grace movement. Uh, here's what Joseph Prince says, just to give you an idea of this theology. God is not judging America or any country in the world today. America and its sins have already been judged. Where? At the cross of Jesus. Sin has been judged at the cross. Now, if you notice in that statement, part of it is true. Sin has been judged at the cross. Right. Sin of everyone who believes. But no, but, but what's, the, what's the side of that that's misleading, guys? Well, that, that God's not judging nations anymore. I right. mean, what, there's no chapter and verse for that. Quite the opposite. The Bible's replete uh, with nations that have fallen under God's wrath. And so, uh, you know, it's not for me to say in what God's doing right now in terms of that, but looking around, you certainly see evidences. And, and I think mainly, uh, you know, to contradict his point, the way God judges nations many times is let them do what they want to do. Let mm-hmm. sinners go their way. If they don't want God, fine, go for it. See how that works Turns for you. Turns them over to a reprobate mind. Exactly. Yeah, God said, or uh, Calvin said, when uh, God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Yeah, and we see what's going on today. So, yeah. So Not Trump though is only Obama. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because Trump, Trump now is we're definitely, political, definitely an evangelical Baptist, Bible believing <laughs> King James. You come over on this side of the table and say that. <laughs> so the gospel of permissive grace. What I'm getting out is that it's all about preaching the love of God, the mercy of God, the the grace of God, and not dealing with the justice of God, the wrath of God and the holiness of God. And if you're going to preach, you have to preach all of it. Um, you can't understand the love of God until you first understand the wrath of God and the holiness of God. And mm-hmm. so what you hear today from most pulpits, uh, permissive grace, is that, um, hey, we just focus on God's love and God's mercy, but yet they don't talk about repentance. They don't talk about sin. They don't talk about discipline or any of those words that we associate with God. I think uh, the key word that you said, Derek, when you were mentioning this one is holiness. And I think that there's there's so little teaching in the culture about the holiness of God. Or when people hear holiness, they think, you know, well, that means that God doesn't have sin. But the problem is, is like, you know, for my Jehovah's Witness friends and, and others, you know, they'll basically say, well, you know, if I'm trying to be a good person, then then God's God understands that I'm a sinner, and so he's going to let me in. And I'm like, okay, how holy is your God that that he's able to compromise on, on his separation from sin? Because that's what he's doing. And so for somebody to say, you know, I can get into heaven by being a nice person or by doing good things for people or, you know, God's going to accept me or whatever – that that's the the problem is is it's a weak view of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, fun, fundamentally, right. you don't understand. You know, as Sproul said, we don't understand who God is, and we don't understand who we are. You know, that a creature from the dirt would defy God, and, and then we would be surprised that the payment for that would be an eternity in hell. Like the like the fact that we find that distasteful that you know, well, God wouldn't send me to hell because I'm not that bad of a person shows that you have a funda- fundamental misunderstanding of who he is and then ultimately who you are mm-hmm. in light of in light of that because the more that you contemplate God's holiness I mean you're you're talking about you think about like the ark of the covenant you know or something like that it's like uh what was it? I think it might have been Sproul again that said you know 
the sin of the man who caught the ark when it fell in the cart was that he thought that his hand was cleaner than the dirt. You know, the holiness of that, God, right? Because you try real great book. Go exactly. Read it if you haven't. Yeah. And so, and, and that's one that's been a life changer for a lot of people because when they read that and they realize God's holiness, then all of a sudden it's like turning the light on. And then the contrast of your own sin compared to that is like, oh my goodness, how could I ever think that I would have any chance of getting into heaven or being accepted by God? Mm-hmm. Which is, and, and then of course the obvious response to that, of that conviction is you, you, you see the savior. You know, I mean, that's how salvation essentially works is you see God in his holiness you see your sin compared to that, and you realize your state of helplessness, and then someone gives you the good news of, hey, God has made a way for you to be saved, and then people latch onto that, right? Because if you see your need, you're going to be like, man, this is my only shot. I have to throw all my chips in on Jesus because this is the only way I'm getting in there. And so fundamentally, the the acceptance gospel is, is a problem with people's understanding of God. They just they don't realize how holy right. he is. Yeah, and, and I think in all of these that we're covering, there's nothing new under the sun, as, as Solomon said. And the reality is these are simply old errors that have been repackaged, sure. uh, yep. you know, updated and put out on the, the Internet. Um, what you've been talking about there is, is antinomianism at mm-hmm. its core. It's against the law. And, and what makes these things so dangerous is that there is much truth in what's being said. Uh, but but here's the deal. If I leave from uh, har- a harbor in Cape Cod to sail to Africa, and on the course I'm only one degree off, okay, that's not much. Mm-hmm. But by the time I cross the ocean, I'm going to end up, in, let's say I'm setting sail for Spain, I'm going to end up down in South Africa, okay? And so when you start with these teachings, it's just a little bit maybe off, but as time goes on, it just becomes wider and wider in its removal from orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing that we haven't discussed about this error is true grace that Paul talks about in, in Romans and in Galatians. True grace doesn't allow you to be content in your sin. Mm-hmm. True grace gives you the power yep. and the desire to have that new heart that won't live in sin, that wants to be sanctified and, and wants to be obedient. And so if you truly understand grace, it's going to uh, p- push you toward holiness and uh, mortifying your sinful body and your flesh. And so all of that begins, of course, with your understanding of, of God's holiness. Um, and that leads me to another of the false gospels that Erwin Lutzer talks about. He calls it the gospel of my sexual preference. And, of course, uh, this is hitting home in a lot of churches right now who are caving in to the LBGTQ movement. Um, interesting discussion I had a couple of weeks ago with a Methodist pastor. And, of course, if you've been following everything that's going on in the United Methodist Church, you know that Pretty much that church is split over this very issue right now, whether they are going to allow uh, homosexual clergy, um, whether they're going to recognize homosexual um, unions. And this pastor that I was talking to uh, was telling me about the the convocation that the United Methodist Church has every four years, and they just had one this past uh, spring. And he told me that the African branch of the 
UMC basically saved the whole denomination from falling in into the pit, so to speak, of of adopting uh, the homosexual agenda and lifestyle and recognizing that. So basically all the brothers uh, in in the African movement are more orthodox um, than than the rest. The uh, same thing happened with the Episcopal Church. Right, yeah. Um, it was the Africans primarily in the worldwide Anglican communion that, that disciplined the American church for their acceptance. Of well, it. these are folks that have in that continent more recently came to faith mm-hmm. in, in many ways, and so they still are holding to the truth of Scripture before all the uh, sophisticated seminary professors get a hold <laughs> of them and uh, you know, tell them you can't believe the Bible. They ain't got enough cemeteries in Africa. Yeah, exactly. and that's a good thing. But, um, you know, this is not something that's going away anytime soon. And um, it pastors out there, if you're, not, if you're not putting your foot down and you're not uh, really... Uh, holding to the truth of Scripture on this one, uh, the undertow of compromise can very slowly pull you away. I think and, that's I think that's part of the problem, though, is that a lot of pastors don't even have a, a biblical theology of of sexuality mm-hmm. um, because it just hasn't been taught. So, like we've taken for granted that in American culture for the last hundred years, heterosexuality has just been normal, mm-hmm. and so anything outside of that was frowned upon culturally and so it was kind of a given in the church of like well we don't really need to talk about it we don't really need to teach on it we don't even really need to study the issue because that's not going to happen here in our church that's not going to happen in our denomination that's not an issue Mm -hmm. and so there's a lack of preparedness um you know i mean like like one of the issues that i've heard people discuss online that a lot of a lot of us are not prepared for that honestly i'm not as prepared as i want to be is there's a there's a pretty significant number of people who are going through um, transgender surgeries that are later becoming believers and now they have modified bodies, and so they come to a church and say, "I've accepted now that biologically I am a man or a woman, and, and my mind it thinks differently, but my body has been surgically changed, and what what do I do now?" I mean, that's a question that your average pastor has no idea how to counsel that person or how do we accept them as a church member? How do we minister to this person that's in this situation? But that's a real issue that's going to happen. And we we might think that it's not going to happen in our communities, but it is. And if we're not ready to receive those people, how can we ever share the gospel with them if we don't think they're really going to be transformed? Well, in mm-hmm. the saddest state of it is that some of those future folks are in, are going to be in the position that they're in because not not their choice, but their parents, their idiot yes. parents that that as here's my little boy that's playing with the doll. So obviously he's mm-hmm. going to be a girl. So yeah. let's get all that taken care of, right? Because because we don't want to reinforce gender stereotypes. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> so and we're so going to reinforce. You're going to have even more confusion. And so so I I agree. And, and my whole thing is, you know, that a person's repentance and regeneration has nothing to do with their biological parts. You mm-hmm. know. Uh, if if they understand that they are a male and uh, they've had things done or or vice versa, but they come to faith in Christ, okay, you know, do, do you have to have the whole thing undone, uh, reversed? Uh, they may choose to do that, but you know, uh, last summer when I was in Vermont, we did an outdoor evangelistic meeting in downtown Bennington, very liberal place. 
and we had probably you know 50 75 people that gathered there and obviously one guy was in a dress hey you know what i did i preached to him gave him jesus you know i didn't shun him wouldn't shook his hand talked to him didn't treat him like he's the scum of the earth uh, because he was a sinner that needed jesus just like i mm-hmm. uh, sinner that needed jesus so I think that's kind of the mindset that we're going to have to adopt with those folks. But it, but it will be a challenge, I think, for some people uh, in, the, in the future time. I think I think there's just a lot of those issues. I do agree, Derek, that it, this is not going to go away and that pastors especially need to spend some time studying and thinking through um, how are we going to reach these people. I had a conversation with somebody the other day about um, artificial intelligence, because artificial intelligence is a big problem in the future, mm-hmm. um, and even currently, and even experts are saying it's starting to get out of control now. How nine thousand? Yeah, but <laughs> but here's the thing, though. Here's the thing, though. You have artificial intelligences now that we're also moving into like legitimate virtual reality where transhumanism. You're, you're, you ever studied that? Yeah, Boy, you're, that's scary. You're, you're getting to the point where. Um, you could be inside of a, of a headset and the graphics could be so real for what you're saying that you may not be able to tell whether you're actually seeing it for real or not. Now, you combine that with uh, with sexuality, which humans do with everything, and you're, we're going to have teenagers in the next generation. My, my kids are going to grow up in a generation of teenagers that are going to have AI uh boyfriends, girlfriends, sexual partners, things like that, that's going to be a legitimate thing for them that they may not even be able to really distinguish between a real person or not. What was that movie? The you Matrix? Know. No, no, no. There was oh, a movie. Sur- <laughs> I mean, Surrogates was one. There was a movie um, about the guy who had the girlfriend that was AI. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot. What there's there's several of them like that, but we're we're actually approaching technologically the ability to do that. And that's another thing of like, because everybody wants to harp on this the, will be the gay person. Good topic that we yeah. should do like a whole episode on yeah. transhumanism. Everybody wants to harp on like the gay person, right? And and because that was, you know, but it's like okay, it's 2019 now, pastor. Like the gay community's been out since like the 90s. So like, I mean, yeah, we need to talk to them. They need the gospel like every other person does, right? But the reality is is the church is generally 20 to 30 years behind the culture. And the fact is, is while you're up there harping on gay marriage, your teenage son has a girlfriend that you don't know about that exists on a computer that, that he, in his mind is experiencing a sexual relationship with on a regular basis. And you have nothing to say to him about it. And you have no idea what's going on. Um, and, and that's something that pastors are just not prepared for that. They need to be thinking about that kind of stuff because it's going to be a real issue. Yeah. And you know, like, People in our churches have their heads buried in the sand. Uh, like Sunday, as I'm going through First Corinthians, I come to chapter 7, and what basically Paul deals with sex. And so I'm up there preaching about what? Sex. And you look out there, and it's like, can I, is he really saying these things, you know? And then like, what about our kids hearing that? <laughs> yeah. And they I just already know. Oh, listen. <laughs> and, and they have warped ideas about mm-hmm. it instead of, you know, I, I tell, I didn't write this, you know, it's mm-hmm. in the Bible. Right. And, and the truth is that, that those kids, I'll give you an example uh, that, that there was a child uh, that somebody just came up to him, another kid and said, do you, to this girl, do you like boys or girls? And they were like, what you know and the, and the little girl says i like both you know mm-hmm. and 
and, and that and that's that's what kids are hearing and what they're exposed to. And then you got parents back there sitting. Uh, well, I sure hope the youth guy has uh, pepperoni pizza for him tonight. Yeah, you know. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's where we are. Exactly. It's, it's madness. Yes, it is. And so the the whole the whole gospel of sexual freedom is a thing, and it's an identity thing. Yeah, and it's 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 bigger now than ever. Like I, and I'm with you on that. I'm I'm totally behind on the times on this, and I've got kids, but uh, pastors in the future are definitely going to have to hit. Sexuality in their in their sermons and in their preaching and teaching. Because, well, and the Bible does. Yeah, if you look at it, I mean, there's huge portions of the New Testament that deal with sexual immorality. So it's not like it's even a big deal. It's just like Dennis was saying. Culturally, we d- we just assumed it for a right, long time. Right, it's basic but, building but blocks, Paul did, Paul male and female. It. But you're gonna have to you go know. back and hit it again and again and again because the lines are going to get more and more blurred in our society as we move forward. And your kids and the next generation are going to be so confused if we don't. You you have to get on it rapidly. You've got a candidate in a major party who has significant uh, publicity uh, and, and momentum who is married to a guy and they openly kiss, you know, right there on TV. And he's promoting this as being the moral thing. And here's the deal, though. There are many in that party that think he's he's not bad enough. He's not far enough advanced. Mm-hmm. He's not intersectional enough. He's too pale. He's you know not you know too moral as they they term it. And and so you know if we continue in this way, this rapid descent into the abyss. We're going to find that even to teach on these topics or do like we're doing here, we're going to be cut off. We, we will not be able to broadcast something like this to say something. You're going to be guilty of a hate crime. They're going to come in. They're going to haul you into jail. Just read Romans 1, and that would be considered a hate crime. It today. would be. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, and you've got – and the interesting thing is is that even within the movement, now there's divisions. Like I've got gay friends that can't stand transgender people because they're like, I don't have anything to do with you. You're not the same as me. It's like they've had you know, their, their agenda hijacked by another And it, it's the same thing with the LGBT movement and feminism. Like, radical feminism is, like, totally opposed to the LGBT movement because if the whole thing is, is empowering me as a woman and then you're saying that women don't exist or women are whatever <laughs> I want them to be, it, it's just, it's imploding. Mm-hmm. And so then the funny thing is, is you've got all these people that the only thing that they can agree on is that they're against Christianity, but but then they're fighting with each other like cats and dogs, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's... Uh, Michael Brown wrote a book, and and that's essentially his theory is that basically it's a, it's a it's a um, result of the culture of death in general, and that it's going to implode, and that basically the solution for the church is just to survive the implosion. That's that what you know, Babylon is all yeah, about. like fun, like fundamentally, yeah. like we're not going to be able to change all these people. Right. All these guys that think they're going to vote somebody in the office and that's going to fix everything is not going to happen. But the fact is, is wretches going wretch, and you know if you let them do it, they're they're it's just the whole thing is going to implode. Mm-hmm. You know the 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 trick is is not to get your church to get sucked into it and implode yeah, with and it. And it's salt, uh, salt and light, especially salt. We we don't stop the decay; we slow the rate of decay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. and 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 I think you know, guys, and, and I know what you're saying, but um, when there are numerous candidates for the presidency that are so radical you're talking about wretches gonna wretch i mean mm-hmm. this is wretchedly wretching okay <laughs> and and when they're very open about that 
if if those folks get in, it's it's not just like we're on a slow descent to hell. It's like uh, you know you've dropped out of a plane, <laughs> right. straight mm-hmm. straight down. And how that affects us and, and the people we're trying to reach in the church and opportunities for you. I know you have kids and grand. I have grandkids, and and so I think we do have a responsibility in that, understanding that the law is not going to fix it, but maybe get, do what the law does, which is restrain evil mm-hmm. uh, and promote righteousness and do what we can. But uh, but basically, man, it's it's. Uh, uh, we we're not slouching toward Babylon. We have fully embraced it. Yeah, so I think that's a good stopping point for us. Uh, once again, the book is "The Church in Babylon" by Erwin Lutzer, who I learned recently just stepped down from his pastorate at the historic Moody Bible Church in Chicago, but he's still writing. And if you're looking for a a meaty, nourishing read and a challenging read, pick up this book, um, Pastor church leader, Sunday school teacher, deacon, we are in Babylon. And um, so that calls for people of integrity and great courage and great faith. Let me close with two things. Um, As we talked about the five false gospels, remind you of Galatians 1, verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. And so we have that injunction right there from 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 Paul. In fact, picking up some of the most pungent language he can in the in the New Testament, anathema to anyone who preaches another gospel. And then uh, I read to you from page two hundred two on Erwin Lutzer's book here a challenging quote that we should think about. He says, "You can tell whether you're preaching the gospel by asking yourself, would this message get me thrown out of a synagogue or mosque?" If you could preach in a Mormon temple and not stir up anger, you have not preached the gospel. The gospel urges men and women to repent of their sins and put their faith in Christ alone for eternal salvation. Thank you for joining us today, and we will see you next time. You can continue the conversation online by visiting us on Facebook at facebook.com slash the number four horsemen. Don't forget to tell your friends and enemies about the podcast and be sure to subscribe and review. They look at me funny when I talk like I got a speech impediment. Homie, check my passport. Heaven, I'm a resident. Like a conscious rapper, but do more than master president. I see brothers coughing, so I hit them with the medicine. On the other side, they say their grass is greener. Seen the forecast, man, they calling for Katrina.